So today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26, and it can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you, and it's on page 959. It's also should be behind me, which it is. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our most presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is God's word. Thank you, Wendy, for reading that, and I'll, I'll say a few things at the end, but just say now we're going to miss you and the Thompsons, and I'm just really thrilled for your friendship, and we'll be praying for your transitions, and again, I'll, I'll save the rest for the end of the service, but um, keep your Bibles open with me to 1 Corinthians 12, and let's pray as we, as we look at God's Word together. Lord, our desire this morning is to hear from you. This is your word, and we praise you that you are a God who speaks. And so, God, would you give us ears this morning? Would you open our eyes to see you, and would you prepare our hearts to be changed by the truth of your gospel? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Nobody plans for disability. Uh, When you're making your vows in... You say the words in sickness and in health, or when you rejoice over the positive pregnancy test, nobody's thinking about the possibility of what might happen just months from now to completely turn your world upside down. And understandably so. I mean, it would be a rather morbid existence to go through life constantly worrying about when the hammer's going to fall and, you know, 
and so on. There's no joy in that kind of constant fear. But when you're touched by disability, fear is the air that you breathe. Anxiety, exhaustion, sorrow, grief. It is unrelenting. Um, It's like wading into the ocean and getting hit by a wave and knocked off your feet and your breath, you know, knocked out of you. And before you can find your feet again and stand up, the second wave hits you. And then again and again. Uh, Many of you have heard me talk about my best friend, Steve. Uh, Steve's daughter, Amelia, was uh, born healthy, but was diagnosed with leukemia at age, uh, at three months old. And uh, the, the chemo killed the cancer. She's eight years old today, cancer-free. But it weakened her body such that when she caught meningitis during the fourth round of chemo, it left her severely uh, disabled uh, intellectually and physically. Uh, she is a beautiful, beautiful little girl. And the stories that Steve and Jen can tell about how her life has touched so many people is beautiful. But her life is not what most of us call normal. Uh, there is love, there is joy in their family, but there is also grief and fear. Uh, and if you or someone you know is is touched by disability, you know that never-ending list of, of concerns that can surround it. Family adjustments and concerns about the future. What happens when we're no longer able to take care of our child? Uh, medical issues, financial issues, legal issues, uh, social issues, education issues, exhaustion, stress. All of which can bring you to the very edge of your faith. Where is God in all of this? And it doesn't matter if the, if the disability is physical uh, something like blindness or, or deafness or a paralysis or immobility, or if it's cognitive, autism, uh, Asperger's, OCD, bipolar disorder, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, learning disabilities like ADHD or dyslexia, or, or a combination of those that come from things like Down syndrome or, or traumatic brain injury, uh, whatever whether it's your disability or your parents or your child's or your spouse's, whatever shape it takes, it is a daily reminder that the world does not work the way that it's supposed to. That this pain and suffering, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Which raises an important question as we think about what we're doing here this morning, opening God's Word. What hope does the gospel of Jesus hold out for those whose lives are marked by disability? Does the good news of Jesus really speak to that? I can get that it talks about our eternal security and our relationship with God. Does it really speak to the day-in, day-out grind of life with disability? I believe that it does. In fact, I believe the gospel is the only thing that can give us the categories for making proper sense of disability. And the only thing that offers any lasting hope in the face of it. And that's what I want us to see this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians. 
I want us to see two things. First, that the gospel gives us categories for making sense of disability. And second, that the gospel gives us a way forward for living with disability or for supporting those whose lives are affected by it. And so first, the proper categories. How do we understand the nature of what we call disability? Uh, Stephanie Hubach uh, has written a book called Same Lake, Different Boat. It's an excellent book. Uh, And she helps us understand the various answers that have been offered to this question of what is the nature of disability. The historical answer is that Disability is an abnormal part of life in a normal world. That's the historical answer to what we're dealing with. That there is what we consider to be normal and expected, and then there is other. You know, that which is abnormal or broken or defective. That's the category. Uh, It's, you know, the perspective that we innocently and, and, and perhaps somewhat naively express when you're expecting and someone asks, you know, do you want a boy or a girl? And, and we say, I don't care as long as it's healthy. And, and, you know, sounds like kind of a pious answer about, you know, I'm not going to pick between genders. But, but even there, there's this subtle thing in there that says something, that, that there are few worse things for parents than to have to have an unhealthy child. There's this perspective that's abnormal in a normal world. And on the one hand, that's completely understandable. I mean, it's not hard to recognize that disability is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet, if we think that there's normal, and then there's this over here that's abnormal, that view has not only fueled the marginalization of disabled people in education systems and society, it has been used to justify terrible abuses, even the murder of disabled people. In not so recent, not so distant history, uh, the absolute most terrible example in 1939, Adolf Hitler enacted what became known as the T4 euthanasia program in Germany. Now, when we think of Germany in World War II and the Holocaust, we usually think of the millions of Jews who were murdered, and that's true. But how did they learn and perfect their mass murdering skills? They did it by murdering the disabled German citizens whom they deemed life unworthy of life. Those who would threaten the purity of the Aryan race. They killed 70,000 of their own people in just from 1939 to 1941. Uh, and after the program was then shut down, it continued underground killing an estimated uh, 200,000 additional people. Life unworthy of life. And, you know, we rightly squirm at that. That's absolutely terrible. And yet our country stands with the same blood on its hands. Through the advent of prenatal genetic testing, it's estimated that somewhere between 67 and 90 percent of babies diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb are aborted in this country. Life unworthy of life. We make those judgments. God have mercy on us. We need a better narrative than the historical perspective that that this is abnormal in a normal world. 
And so the second and increasingly common answer today is what Hubach calls the postmodern answer. That disability is a normal part of life in a normal world. That there's nothing wrong at all happening here. It's just different. And the sentiment there is well-meaning. I mean, affirming the value and the dignity of every person, all disabled people. Uh, But it lands a bit trite uh, in the ears of those who actually live with disability to the point that it it basically reduces disability to uh, misplaced expectations. That the only thing really wrong here is that you expected to land in Italy and you landed in Holland instead. Um, I mean, it rightly encourages us to look for the beauty in disability, but it does not give voice to the very real pain and the downright hell that disability can bring. And so we need a better narrative than that, too. And it's the gospel of Jesus that provides that better narrative. The good news that that God has looked on this broken world in mercy and sent his son who lived in our place and died in our place to rescue us and to make all things new. And when we look at the question of disability through the lens of the gospel, the biblical answer is that disability is a normal part of life in an abnormal world. And you need to follow the logic carefully there. So, first is the critical observation that we live in an abnormal world. We live in what we call a fallen world that was given over to corruption and decay because of human sin clear back in the beginning, in the garden. The world, therefore, does not work the way that it's supposed to. Human rebellion has fractured God's good creation. It's spoiled now with disease and death. And we've been living with the results of that initial rebellion throughout human history. And because the world is therefore abnormal, not the way it's supposed to be, then disability is in fact a normal part of life in an abnormal world. It's common and frequent. It's even to be expected in some ways to to see it or or even to experience it. Not because there's something wrong or invaluable with the disabled person, but because there's something wrong with the world we live in. And that shows itself in different ways. There's a fallenness, really, that shows up in all of our lives in different ways. Most critically in our separation from God. And disability, as, as Stephanie Hubach puts it, is, quote, essentially a more noticeable form of brokenness that is common to the human experience. A normal part of life in an abnormal world. See, we're all broken. We're all uh, falling apart in some way or another. With disability, it's just more obvious. It's more obvious. But if disability is a result of the fall, that means there is hope for it in the gospel. Because what Jesus accomplished on the cross was to roll back both the cause and the effects of sin. The cause and the effects of this fallen world. Both sin and decay. So that not only could we be forgiven of our sin, but that this fallen world could be redeemed through the resurrection and made new. 
If you think about it, why was healing such an important part of Jesus' earthly ministry? Obviously because he was compassionate. He saw a need and he met it. But also because he was showing us what we can all expect in the new creation to come. Jesus' healings and miracles were a sign pointing to the reality of his kingship and the promise of his eternal kingdom, the new heavens and new earth where Revelation tells us he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's where the story of the gospel is going. That's why only the gospel can give lasting hope to this difficulty. Jesus not only bore our sin, he also bore our diseases, as Isaiah 53 puts it, as Matthew 8 puts it, so that our redemption might be whole and complete, that everything spoiled by sin, not only our broken relationship with God, most importantly that, but not only that, Everything spoiled by sin, including death and disease and injury, might be undone completely in the world to come. The gospel gives us a category for making sense of disability. It's a normal part of life in an abnormal world. But that means that the gospel also gives us hope in the face of disability. That when Jesus returns, this abnormal world will be made new and disability will be no more. So where does that leave us in the meantime? That's wonderful. That is true hope. And we live based on that. But where does that leave us in the meantime? The second thing I want us to see this morning is that the gospel gives us a way forward for living with disability or coming alongside, supporting and helping those who live with it because the gospel affirms the value and contribution of every member of the body regardless of differences or abilities. The gospel of Jesus affirms the value and contribution of every member of the body regardless of of differences or abilities. And this finally brings us to 1 Corinthians 12, which Wendy read earlier for us. And we've landed in 1 Corinthians several times uh, in this series. And here in chapter 12, Paul's responding to a question that the church has asked him about spiritual gifts. The problem uh, was that their practice of of, of these various gifts, rather than building up the church, was actually tearing it apart. And so Paul's responding to that, but, but because of that deeper problem of disunity, he's responding not only to their question, but to the heart issue underneath their question, which is this kind of fracturing and disunity. Uh, it's something he's been addressing re- really throughout the entire letter. And he applies this call to unity amid diversity, not only to spiritual gifts, not only to the questions that they've asked, but he applies it to other differences in the passage as well. For instance, in verse 13, he applies it to differences like uh, different ethnicities, whether you're Jew or Greek, or different social uh, differences, uh, such as slave or free. And for that reason, I think that we can 
reasonably apply it to still more differences that we might find in the body, including differences of natural ability like uh, what we find in disability. And in doing so, as we apply this passage to our question, we're going to see how the gospel gives us a way forward uh, for living with disability or helping those who are touched by it, even while we wait and look for that final redemption in the end. And the first point comes in verses 12 through 13. The first thing we need to understand in this question is that the gospel makes us one in Christ. The gospel makes us one in Christ. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And we're all made to drink of one spirit. So what brings us together in the body of Christ, in the church, is not our similarities. It's not our similar gifts or similar skin color or similar similar, uh, financial portfolio or similar abilities. What brings us together and keeps us together and makes us a family is our common faith in Jesus Christ. Membership in God's kingdom is based on nothing else than that. It's what the Spirit has done to make us new through faith in Christ. That alone is the basis of our unity. The gospel makes us one in Christ. Which means that unity and diversity, differences, are not at odds with each other. In fact, that differences within the body don't make us weird, they actually make us useful. That's where Paul's going. That's his second point, that every member is a valuable part of the body. So first, the gospel makes us one in Christ. Every member is a valuable part of the body. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. And if he didn't make it clear there, he says again in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And in verses 19 to 20, if all were a single member, a single limb or organ, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, diversity, yet one body, unity. And there is a difference between unity and uniformity. Sometimes we think that those two are the same, that to be one, you have to be just like everybody. There's a difference between unity and uniformity, just as there's a difference between diversity and disunity. Those are not the same thing. Diversity recognizes that we have differences. Unity recognizes how all of those differences work together as one. And so it is with Christ, one body, many members, which means that each member, each limb, each organ has its part to play. Uh, As Hubach shrewdly puts it, when the church attempts to function without all its parts, the body of Christ becomes disabled. Think about that. When the church attempts to function without all of its parts, The body of Christ is what becomes disabled. 
We need each other. Every one of us is a valuable part of Christ's body, regardless of our differences. In fact, should put it a different way, every one of us is a valuable part of Christ's body precisely because of our differences. One body, many hearts. And those differences are according to Christ's design. That's Paul's third point, verse 18. God is the author of our differences. So verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So the diversity of Christ's body is not an accident. It's by design. The diversity of gifts, the spiritual gifts in the body, the diversity of ethnicities, and even the diversity of abilities. Now, we do not know why God ordains or allows disability in our lives. Uh, We do know that it's not because he accidentally slipped off his throne for a minute and then everything just fell apart. And we do know that whatever weight of the fall we might feel, Jesus came to feel it with us, to take our place under it and ultimately deliver us from it. And we know that when he returns, he will take it all away completely. He will make all things new. Which means that none of this is an accident. None of this is an accident. The trials that we face, whatever they are, they find their purpose and their meaning as part of Christ's story that he's telling. Which means that we have value and we have significance and we have a part to play, all of us. And if those three things are true, that the gospel makes us one, that every member is a valuable part of the body, and that God is the author of our differences, then there are four things Paul wants us to do in response. Number one is that those who feel inferior should not look down on themselves. Those who feel inferior should not look down on themselves. Verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't really belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Those who feel inferior should not look down on themselves. It's tempting uh, that for those of us who do see ourselves as as weaker or less important or less skilled, and whether we're talking about spiritual gifts or physical abilities, uh, to think that because we can't do what others who are often more celebrated can do, that therefore we don't belong. Uh, We don't have a place here. And what Paul is saying here, what God is saying here is, do not sell yourself short. Every member of the body of Christ has a contribution to make. All too often when we focus on people with special needs, we emphasize the specific disability and we fail to see the abilities. That needs to change. That needs to change in the hearts of those who who don't face those same kinds of difficulties, but it also needs to change in the hearts of those who live with those disabilities to no longer believe that, that they're inferior or, or somehow broken. 
but that God can use you as well. And he's gifted you by his spirit to use you as an important part of his body. The rest of us need you. We can learn from you, as Lynn put it earlier, and we want to. And so ask yourself the question, what do you love? And parents, you may need to help them answer some of these questions. But what do you love? What are you passionate about? What are you good at? And how does that line up with the kingdom of God? And if those questions sound familiar, they should, because those are the questions all of us should be asking about how to serve God. What do you love? What are you good at? How does that line up? with the kingdom of God. And let's find a way for you to serve and to grow there. Those who, are in, who feel inferior should not look down on yourselves. But if we're really going to encourage that, then second, those who feel superior should not look down on others. That's Paul's next exhortation, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Those who feel superior should not think too highly of themselves and should not look down on others. A major reason uh, that people or families with disability feel marginalized in the church is because we think more highly of certain gifts or abilities than we ought to. As though the body would still be the body without them. We look down on those with lesser gifts or lesser abilities as though they're less valuable to Christ or his mission, which is to our shame and is a mark of, a, of our selfishness. And, and if we do that, if we let ourselves do that, we, we not only miss the truth of how Christ has arranged the body, remember, he's the author of our differences, we also miss the pattern of the cross in God's kingdom. We miss the pattern of the cross. And if we saw and followed the pattern of the cross, then the opposite would actually be true of how we lived. And that's the next point, three, that the less able should receive special honor and not be neglected. Verses 22 to 24. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable part, our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Those who are less able should receive more honor so as not to be neglected. Do we really believe that to be true, though, when you think about it? Do we really believe that those who seem to be weaker uh, or less able are indispensable to the church in its mission? Is that the word we would use to describe it? Um, Normally, our normal course of thought is to think the opposite. That those who are gifted, those who are talented, those who are skilled, they're the indispensable ones, and we can really get along fine without the rest. But the kingdom of God has often been described as an upside-down kingdom, a place where the first are last, and the last are first. 
where the greatest among you must be slave of all. It's the people whom Paul describes earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 26, saying, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The kingdom of God is the realm in which we recognize that all we have is Jesus. That's all we've got. If we're going to boast in anything, the only thing we can boast in is that Jesus is our Lord and King. And who better to help us understand the true nature of the whole church than those who know that in their bones? Those who, because of their natural disability, recognize their need and dependence on God for things that many of us just simply take for granted. What better gift is there than to remind us that this world is not our home, don't get too comfortable, that Jesus is the best, and that if we have him, we have everything. God honors those who are looked down on in the world, and his church should too. Because they are loved, that's the main point Paul will eventually get to in this section of the letter, chapter 13. Because there's a genuine need, and that's what you do if you love someone, you help them with that need. And because if if we don't pay careful attention, it's simply too easy to let families and friends with a disability slip through the cracks. Uh, That's one of the big reasons why God gives them more honor in verses 24 and 25. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care one for another. No one should be overlooked in the body of Christ. And so that means the church must look out for those who have less capacity or opportunity to look out for themselves. We must be mindful of those who are in need. This was illustrated to me uh, no better than in the story of Amelia's brother, Miles. I mentioned Amelia at the beginning of the sermon, my friend Steve's daughter. Uh, Miles is her six-year-old brother. Amelia is now eight. And last summer, a year ago, um, the Allens were at a birthday party or some sort of event, and, and Amelia's there, and one of Miles' friends found one of Amelia's diapers and started making a big deal about it. Diapers? Oh, gross! Who wears diapers? You know. To which point, Miles looked at him stone cold in the eyes and said, They're my diapers. I like to poop my pants. <laughs> That's love, you know. That's honoring. That's willing to be humiliated for those that the world wants to humiliate. 
That's what the church should be like. We should take special care to give honor to those that the world wants to look down on. Because that's what God has done with us, isn't it? That's what God has done with us. Which means, finally, number four, that our sufferings and joys should be shared as one body. Our sufferings and joys should be shared as one body. The gospel makes us one in Christ. Every member is a valuable part of the body. God is the author of our differences, which means those who feel inferior should not look down on themselves. Those who feel superior should not look down on others. We should give special honor to the weak and vulnerable, and our sufferings and joys should be shared as one body. That's the final point. So if we follow Paul's analogy to its logical conclusion, then what he says in verse 26 makes perfect sense. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I remember one time, um, Joshua was, I think, maybe one and a half, two, a little bit older maybe, uh, slamming my the tip of my finger in a car door to the point where I couldn't, I was holding Joshua and I couldn't actually pull it out or open the door. And so I had to yell at Carissa to come over and open the door for me. I felt that pain from that little fingertip in my toes for days. And, you know, the body is connected. It's not like my toes could protest and say, hey, dude, you're the one who got in the way there. Why do we have to deal with this? You know, the body's connected, and so when one part suffers, the whole thing suffers. And yet, that's what we're kind of tempted to do when we see other members in the body in, the, in need. We're tempted to think, well, that's not really my problem. Why do I have to accommodate? But wouldn't it be so much better? Wouldn't it be actually Christ-like love to say, how can I help? to take Paul at his word that, that if one part of the body is suffering, that we're suffering too, and to actually make it our problem, not just try and distance ourselves from it because it's uncomfortable or we don't understand or we're afraid. And that's honestly pretty hard to do sometimes, uh, especially uh, if you've never faced disability up close. It's hard to know, um, you know, how can I help? Uh, there's a lot of fear that goes in there. A lot of it just comes from the naivety of not having lived in that world. And, and you don't want to insult them. But you don't want to neglect them. And you're just not sure what to say. Well, it simply starts by asking questions. So tell me about your son. Tell me about your mom. What's going on? How can we help? Is there anything we can do? Get to know them. Talk to the person with disability, not just to their parent. Talk to them. How are you? You know, get to know them. And think about how you might be able to come alongside in support. Maybe it's providing respite for a weary parent who has no break. You can't just turn on the TV and let the kids watch that while you do dishes. It's just, it's never ending. Uh, maybe it's tutoring someone with a learning disability. Or providing prayer and support for someone. Uh, helping watch other kids while they make their 13th visit to the doctor in the last three months. 
bringing a meal, just hanging out and talking about something other than this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And it's important to remember that even as though even though there is real suffering, there is real honor and real joy as well. There's joy even in the meantime. There's joy uh, as we see God at work through trials which are so uh, shaping. There's joy in Jojo's dancing in the aisles. Uh, there's joy in the surprising ways that we find God touching our lives through knowing and sharing in the story of someone who has persevered through trials we'll never understand. Someone who is just exuberant in their passion about Jesus, unhindered, unfettered in their passion for Christ. There's joy in little developmental milestones that most of us take for granted. There's joy in successful surgeries. There's joy in seeing the body of Christ come together and share and pray and cry and be a family. There is joy in the meantime, and there is hope. There is hope, because we know this is not the end. It can't be. Christ died for more than this. And as we look forward to that more every day, we know that God will be faithful to his promises, that he's not wasted his breath in Scripture telling us what we have to look forward to and all that he's going to do And that in the meantime, while we long and wait for it, we know that it is the gospel of Jesus that affirms the value and contribution of every member of the body, regardless of our differences and abilities. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice in the truth that you have not left us alone in the trials that mark our lives and the questions that we face in the day-to-day suffering, Lord. We rejoice that you've given us a family together in your body and we rejoice that you are our satisfaction, that you are our strength, that you are everything, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those among us whose story has um, been on display this morning. Uh, Some of us don't even know that part of our friends' lives. Uh, Some of us know it very well and have been intimately involved. But Lord, whatever the difficulties and disabilities that the families here face or that loved ones uh, who aren't here with us, would you be the one to give strength and perspective and hope and joy in the midst of that trial. God, we pray for healing. We pray for physical healing, for intellectual healing, Lord, for those who, whose lives are marked by disability. We pray for understanding friends and parents and school systems. We pray that we would grow as a loving family, eager to lay our lives down for each other, and eager to learn, eager to help others serve, Lord, that every member would be contributing to the body, Lord. 
Lord, where we have had ill thoughts or misunderstandings or just selfish thoughts, would you bring us to repentance? Would you help us turn and change to be more like you? And would our care for one another show that, Lord? And again, we praise you because this is how you have cared for us in our disability, Lord. Every one of us, broken by sin, broken by this fall and big ways and small ways, and yet you in your mercy sent your Son. God, would we walk in the truth and grace that is in Christ with hope. In Jesus' name, amen.